All right, truth, number one. The heart of God is grieved by our sin. Now, what you'll see tonight is that this chapter um, very much, you would never dream this to be the case, but this chapter not only outlines, but has uh, in a great way shaped my understanding of 1 Corinthians 13. So much of what I taught you in 1 Corinthians 13, I learned from Zephaniah chapter 3, believe it or not. And that's just the glory of the Scripture, that there are uh, places where God teaches us things that are so unexpected, yet so wonderful and great. So, truth number one, the heart of God is grieved by our sin. Truth two, the opposite of love, I shouldn't even have put a slide up here, and anyone that didn't know the answer to this, I'd just eject you out of the auditorium, but I thought there may be some visitors here, so I'm going to be nice. You should know this by heart. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. Truth number three, the fact that God is grieved does not nullify His love, it proves it. It proves it. The very fact that God would be grieved when we sin is proof. It should be great encouragement to our heart that God loves us because He cares. What would be the most terrifying thing in the world is that if we, in our sin and rebellion, God didn't do anything. But that's not the case. So what we see in Zephaniah 3, in this, it opens with a detailed report of the crimes of God's people and then the actions taken by God to restrain them. So we have the, the guilt of God's people and on one side, and on the other side we have the love of God's heart. The love of God's heart. So Zephaniah chapter 3 uh, previously, so last week, you remember, we saw uh, these Gentile nations, and Pastor Matt went through the uh, origin of all of those and God's judgment against those setting the table for this final uh, chapter. So woe to her, her being Jerusalem, is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no justice. Every morning he shows forth no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. Then we see this transition of God's response now. So what God's done already, I have cut off the nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste to their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager 
to make all their deeds corrupt. So what you see in 6 and 7 is God's response to their crimes. The things that God has done, even the things that were talked about last week, were all things that God has done to get the attention of His people. They should have seen what God has done in other places to know that He means business, so on and so forth. Then there's uh, the next shift. We go to verse 8. Therefore, wait on me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms, to pour out upon all my them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. So God makes this declaration of what He's going to do. Then in verse 9 you see, for at that time, that time meaning the millennial kingdom when Christ will rule on earth, uh, He'll be king, so at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of the dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. That's an important verse. For then I will remove them from your midst. You, you proudly. Look at that. Exultant ones. You see that? And you shall no longer be haughty. In my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in my name, in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice, nor speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall gaze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Now here's what I want you to see in these passages. I want you to know that... that especially with regards to all throughout the book of Zephaniah, you see this reference to the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, meaning the coming of Christ, the day of judgment, that day that's coming. And whenever the Bible speaks about the day of the Lord, there's always judgment and hope in that moment. It's always together. See, judgment and hope are not two things that are opposed to each other, but there are two aspects of one divine perspective so when God looks at his people and he speaks about the coming day of the Lord he he always speaks throughout Old Testament New Testament in the context of judgment and hope at the same time uh, so you could write down 2nd Peter 3 10 and 2nd Peter 3 13 and you can see this I'll read it to you Here's what the Bible says in 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So that's a terrifying reality. And then he says a couple verses later, same context, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We see judgment and we see hope in the same context. So here's the question that 
this text is causing us to wrestle with. What does God's love look like? What does it look like? Does anybody else need a handout? There's some extra ones back there. Everybody good? Okay. What does this, what does this love look like? So <clears throat> there are, I mean, it's God, so he can have any kind of coin he wants, right? There's three sides to God's, to the coin of God's love. Forgiveness, restraint, and restoration. And all of this is going to make a whole bunch of sense in a few minutes when we get towards the end. You're going to see how all of these things collide and, what, and the beautiful truth that it will teach us. So within the context of His love, it's not just that God forgives us. It's also the restraining part of God's love and the restoring part of God's love. See, God's love is both reactive and proactive. Meaning, think about this. So many times when we focus on the love of God, we focus on the forgiveness of God. But what I want you to consider is that forgiveness comes after the fact. In other words, the damage is already done. You know, you the illustration that I always use is a person who uh, drinks their life away and destroys their liver and then gets saved, is born again with a living hope and will spend eternity with, with God in heaven, yet they don't get a new liver. The consequences remain. So in other words, forgiveness, as beautiful as it is, is post-sin, right? And so that is amazing and wonderful because we're all sinners and we need forgiveness, but that you have to realize there's also, that is a reactive part of God's love. God reacts to our sin, but He also is proactive. He also operates to keep us from sinning in the first place. And that's what we see in this passage. We see forgiveness for what they've done, but we see the proactive side of God's love that's working to restrain them. And we also see this, res- this restoring part of God's love that sometimes you could say in certain situations that the, the man who uh, has destroyed his liver or the woman who destroys her liver and then comes to faith in Christ may in fact receive a new liver. That could happen. But oftentimes in Scripture we see sin, consequences, we see the restraining, then we see sin, then we see consequences, then we see restoration. All of that represents the love of God. Now, let's put this sort of into practice. So many people, many church people, have grown up believing that God is love, but they don't really think that God likes them very much. They, and here's the way we know this. We know this by the way people behave, because behavior tells us about beliefs. And so the things that people do tell us the things that people believe. And here's the thing. A lot of people Uh, grow up and interact with church and have been taught that God is love and so therefore they believe that God is love but then the the beautiful ramifications of that that ought to be present in our lives aren't there because God somehow we believe that God can be love and not like us and I don't exactly understand how somebody can make that connection but I know people do all the time See, most people, 
Most people today, most church-going people today, interact with God in such a way that because of the work of Christ on the cross, God puts up with them. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. And so oftentimes the boldest declarations that we make about God publicly, we often doubt privately. We say things with our mouth. We sing things. We even oftentimes tell other people things. You know, here's what I was thinking about uh, the last couple of days. I was thinking about how many times... Maybe some of you have <clears throat> been ministering to somebody in pain or somebody who is far from God. Maybe somebody you interacted with at work or in your neighborhood or, or something like that. And you're telling them in their, in their distress how much God loves them and that God has a purpose for them and a plan for them. But the truth is you really don't believe that in your heart about yourself. You're saying it to them because you've heard it said, and you know intellectually that that's the solution to their problem, but you don't live in such a way as to declare that you utterly and completely believe that that is true. See, we have to realize tonight that salvation is more than the forgiveness of sin, but it's being submerged into the ocean of God's particular and abiding love for you personally. Personally. And I wonder what that would look like. I wonder what that would feel like. I wonder how that would change us. I wonder, I wonder how we might begin to move in that direction and sort some things out. And, and know that we were. So then verse 14, the next verse, sing aloud. I mean, look at the transition there. And the Bible doesn't even... You know, the, the, the Bible doesn't even make a big deal about this transition. It's no problem for God to transition from one, one of the, in between these conversations because they're all, they all interconnect to God. But in our mind, it's almost like you get to verse 14 and we're in an entirely new conversation. But you're not. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice. And exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. Now these verses, okay, first of all, here, here's what a lot of people do. They read these verses and they go, oh, look at that. Isn't that something? Uh, God is speaking of the love that he has for Israel, for the Jews, for the remnant of Israel. Mm -hmm. Sure. Then you just move right on. As if, well, that's not me. That's not you. We're not. We're not Israel, are we? Romans eleven seventeen, 17. 
And if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, that's talking about me and you, the Gentiles. That's us. That we in, in salvation have been grafted in. And so when you read a promise like that, you have to understand that that's talking to me and talking to you. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. So yes, this is talking to us. Also, uh, the other thing people would say is, now, now these verses, in particular 14, 15, and 16, are speaking, uh, pointing forward towards the millennial kingdom. Mm-hmm, correct. Remember Sunday? What changes about our relationship with God in eternity? It's so important to understand this. Only one thing changes. Us. Understand something. God, God's not a different God when we get to heaven. He's the same God. So if, it, it will just be so helpful in uh, just being able to see the gospel from so many different Angles and in so many different places where God wants to communicate His truth to us. So, if a text is describing the character and nature of God in eternity, it is describing the character and nature of God today. God's not changing. We change. Remember, what did the text say at the end of 1 Corinthians 13? We will know as we have been known. Nothing is changing on God's end. He already knows us now as much as we can be known, which is 100% totally, completely, and utterly. We change. We will know differently. He does not change. Amen? All right. So what happens is, is that as we think about these things, we realize that, well, most of us spend entirely too much time believing that God is mad at us. Now think about something for a second. God may, in fact, in other words, um, we may be experiencing the consequences of disobedience like you may be let's suppose tonight you're you're experiencing you know you're going through something uh you're you know dealing with some troubles or problems or things and and they're connected to uh rebellious decisions that you've made in the past and they're direct consequences of that right so in other words, and I, I, I think I need to say this because people get confused about this a lot of times. People will say um, to me, they'll say, well, you know, is this, is this happening because of something that I did? All right? 
if you just walk into your child's room and you don't say anything to them, and they're like, hi, mom, hi, dad, or, you know, you, and you just walk in, whip your belt out, and start beating. They don't know what in the world's going on. They don't know what in the world's... The, and, and then when you're done, you just walk out and don't say a word to them. What kind of parent does that make you? So do you think that God does that to you? I mean, do you think that God has a communication struggle? Do you think that God has ever said in all of time that, you know, oh, here's, here's one of my children. I'd love to tell them what's really going on, but I don't really know how to communicate with them. I mean, seriously, think about it. You know. So, for example, let's suppose that you are whatever. You just no. I don't want to give you examples because when I start doing that, we're gonna you're gonna get off on the wrong tangent. So, we spend this time thinking that God's mad at us. Now, is He mad at us? When we're suffering, no, the Bible says that he chastens those whom he loves, right? So that's his love. That's not his anger. It's not his wrath. It's his love. Now, in that moment that we feel this, the consequences or whatever is going on, the fact that God is displeased with the situation or circumstance or whatever it is in our life, meditating on that, knowing that, that what good is that doing? The only good that comes from knowing that your parent is upset with you is rightly responding to the fact that they're upset. But if you're, if you're a child, if your child knows that you're upset with them, and so they just begin to sulk in the fact that you're upset with them, and they don't make any adjustments, they don't make any changes, they don't do anything, they, don't, they just stay in the position of, you're upset with me, then what is the value of them knowing that you're upset? It has no value. If it doesn't, if it doesn't change something, if it doesn't move something, if it doesn't accomplish something. And so what we do, what we have is we have a, a lot of people walking around believing in their heart that God is mad at them and it's frustrating on so many levels. Because first of all, I want to say, well, what makes you think God is mad at you? Second of all, you know, I, I want to say, do you know God? Third of all, I want to say, if all of that's true, what are you doing in response to the fact that, but because it's not doing any good to say he's mad. That doesn't accomplish anything. It's just totally unprofitable. And then on the flip side, what we see is that most Christians don't find great enjoyment in Christ. See, here's what happens. We find comfort in, we find comfort in the fact that, uh, you know, God is a knowable God. We find comfort in the fact that God sent His Son. We find comfort in the fact that He went to the cross for our sins. We find comfort in the fact that when we die, we hope we get to go to heaven and things of that nature. We find comfort. But we find enjoyment, oh, in football. 
We find enjoyment in, you know, watching our kids' activities. We find enjoyment in making money or buying a new car or going on a vacation. Or That's where we find our enjoyment. We find comfort in Christ. We find, we find you know, peace, but we don't find our enjoyment. No. Oh, no. And so why? Why do most, what is the problem? What is the reason that people don't find great enjoyment in Christ? And here's the reason. It's because they don't believe that Christ finds great enjoyment in them. That's the reason. You're never going to find great enjoyment in a relationship with someone who doesn't find great enjoyment with you. Now, is that hard to figure out? Some of you are like, well, that explains my <laughs> marriage or that explains my, you know. How many of your relationships did I just define right there? You're the one with all the, you know, all the skin in the game and you don't enjoy it very much, do you? You know what makes a relationship enjoyable? When, when you're in a relationship with someone who delights in you. You see, if we knew, if we knew the way God feels towards us, we would still enjoy football. We would still enjoy buying stuff. We would still enjoy vacations. We would still enjoy all of those things, but they would not come close. To a relationship with Christ. So what I want you to do tonight is I really want, I, I don't want you to, to, to feel some inappropriate condemnation about this. I mean, you know, you know. There's not a person in this room that doesn't know where you find your greatest enjoyment. You know. Stop lying. You know the truth. And if it's not in Jesus... This is the problem right here. And it's so fixable. You don't need to leave here tonight and try to love Christ more. Try, you don't know. All you've got to do is just devote yourself to, to knowing and understanding how God feels towards you. And it will transform your life. So what actually would your life look like if you were thoroughly persuaded in the depths of your heart, not only that God loves you, but that He enjoys you? That when God sees you coming, He doesn't duck off into the, around the nearest corner. But he moves towards you and he smiles and he's excited to see you as if God would, you know, could not see us at some moment or something. But, you know, but if, if you knew in the depths of your soul that God takes pleasure in you. And you, you're going to be surprised at the end of tonight how this takes root in our heart, how this, how we get swindled out of this amazing blessing. 
But I just want to spend a couple of moments making sure that we all understand that we're being swindled. Okay? I want you to think about how much time that we all invest in making, other, making sure that other people like us. Hmm. Why do we do that? Why is that so important? Why does it bother you so much if somebody doesn't like you, doesn't approve of you, doesn't agree with you? I mean, have we ever, is there ever been a time in human history, certainly in Western culture, no doubt in American history, there's never been a time where people were more just devoted to making sure that they're around people that agree with them. It's very bizarre. And here's what's so ridiculous about it. Is that everyone thinks they're right. What fools. What fools. Think about how much time we invest in hiding the real us. You know, I, I don't know, um, you know, because I'm still a young man, as if you can't see that, you know. So I don't, I don't know about old people, but, but here's what I know. You know, that has there ever been a time when we were, we're we we're less inclined to allow people freedom to, to enter in and out of our lives. Think about something. Think about how uh, just a generation ago, if you, for example, if you lived in a neighborhood, then uh, the people that lived on the street that you lived on, it would be completely normal for you as a child, to run in and out of those houses, you wouldn't knock on the door. You just go in the front door, go in and out. You know, and even we're not talking about, you know, in the 40s and 50s. We're talking about when when my grown children were teenagers. My house was filled with teenagers all the time. They came in and out of my house. They ate all my food. They, you know, laid on all my furniture and took advantage of all my stuff. And it was fine. Mackenzie. You, you see, but what I'm saying is, is that there was nothing to hide. Some of you never let anyone come to your house. It's very strange. What do you think we're going to see? Maybe I should be glad I don't come to your house. I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, are there bones in the closet or something? I mean, what, what's happening in there? But what I suspect is that it has more to do with your dirty laundry or your unmopped floor or your... And so, so, so 
do you think that we think that all of that doesn't exist in your house? Because it does in ours, so, like, we already know that. So, what are we doing here? Like, what's happening? We are so hesitant. We don't want anyone to see behind the curtain. And it just proves there's something wrong. There's something wrong with you. That's not good. Think of how much time we invest in pretending everything is okay. We want everyone to think that it's okay. We're not okay. But we want everyone to think that we're okay. It's strange, isn't it? Something's wrong with us. Those are all indicators of danger. There's a problem. We work so hard to negotiate our, you know, whatever quadrant of our life that people interact with us in. And so we have this we have this persona that we put on when we're at work or this, this person that we are at school or this person that we are at church or this person that we are at home or whatever the case may be. And it's just bizarre. And it's, it shows that there's something critically wrong internally. The key that can set us free from our unquenchable thirst for acceptance is coming to a place where we truly understand God's great affection for us. It doesn't seem like this would have the effect on us that it does. But it's exactly the remedy. Like, what, like whatever it is that freaks you out, I mean, I don't know what it is. But let's just suppose that the thought of somebody just knocking on your door unannounced and coming in and seeing the chaos of your living room just mortifies you. What I'm saying is, is that if you understood God's acceptance of you, the way the Bible teaches it, you wouldn't care what someone else thinks. You would just say, hey, it's been a rough week. Get over it. Have us shove the stuff aside and sit down. But it, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's something else. You know what I mean? Maybe I just, I just feel like when the world has changed so much so rapidly, but, but the world, the, the, the Christianity that I came into as a 25-year-old 
man, that world was, people were, when people were hiding from each other, is because they were hiding their sin. Now certainly that's still true today. That you are hiding sin in your life, and so therefore you ought to be ashamed of that, and you need to take care of that. But, but now we've moved, because I think of social media and the spread of information and technology, we've moved, I mean, that, that's just a, one part of this whole equation where we want to interact with each other in ways that we can control and bottle up. It's interesting that I was uh, reading something the other day and it was, uh, it was giving the statistics of the, the, the most Googled questions or statements. You know, I mean, think of the gazillions of things that are Googled every minute. And so in order to even make the top 10, it, it has to just be some astronomical number with so many zeros, I don't even know how to pronounce it. And yet way up at the top of that is how to have a conversation. How to keep a conversation going. People don't know how to talk. They know how to type, but they don't know how to talk. Because they, want to, they control it. Because you're broken. You know how you learn to talk? is when you let people just barge into your life and you just have to talk to them. That's how you learn to talk. But if, if, if you're sending me a message and then I'm thinking about it and analyzing it and then crafting my response and then sending back my response, that's not talking. And so God comes along in verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst. Now, you, got, you remember where we started? This list of crimes? You're guilty. You've done this. It, it, it's not up for debate. Like, this is what you've done. This is the treachery that you've committed, Israel. This is what God's done in other places. This, I mean, I mean those, those first 12, 13 verses are hard to even read. And then God says, I'm in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Isn't it interesting that that word exalt, I keep pointing that out to you, it keeps coming up. That they were doing it wickedly and how God uses the same word and redeems it forward. And so now here we're already in 17, the third time we've come across the same word. So here's God. He comes along and says, Now the Lord God, not will be in your midst, is. So again, you shouldn't need a slide for this, but I'm going to give you grace. The value of a promise is dependent on the character and ability of the person making it. So promises, promises are not equal. It's not equal. See, if, if, if you're 
front door falls off your house. And I promise to come fix it. We're not sure how that's going to go. But if Wade promises to come fix it, well, then that's a whole different promise. See, if your AC goes out and I tell you I'm going to come fix it, you're probably going to be sweaty for a while. But if Brian says he's going to come fix it, well, then you have a pretty good idea that you see. So who makes the promise completely changes the promise, right? So if it's based on, well, so what makes a promise valuable? It's 100% based on the character. What do I know about the person? Because, see, maybe, maybe somebody's able to do it, but their character proves that they don't really ever help anybody, so then you don't have any confidence they're going to help you. But if the character proves that they have an exorbitant willingness to help people and their ability proves that you know that they can do that and have the resources to back it up, if those two things come together, what you have is an extraordinarily valuable promise, right? Yeah. And so what, how do we know? I mean, for example, character. Put Numbers 23:19 under character. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Question mark. Does he promise and not fulfill? Question mark. Character, ability. Put Jeremiah 32, 27 under ability. That verse says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? So when he says, I'm in your midst, a mighty one who will save. You know what we do in this situation? See, we're in our rebellion and sin. God says, I'm the Lord your God in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And you know what? We do. Instead of looking at the character and ability of the person making the promise, you know what, you know, you know, you know the answer to this. We say, but I don't deserve it. We abandon all biblical theology as if there were ever a moment that you ever deserved anything from God. But somehow we tell ourselves, but I don't deserve it. That can't be for me because I haven't performed up to God's expectation. God's not happy with me. Oh, because of this I've done in the past and that I've done in the past. And you violated all principles of, of, of God and His ability to communicate. And you say, see, all these things that are wrong in my life are all consequences for the decisions that I've made that God's punishing me on. You don't even know that. You're just making it up. Because as long as you can just come up with some rationale for why something's happening, you feel better. Well, lucky for you, your house didn't get firebombed in the middle of the night. Come on. Come step into my world for a minute. Well, why did that happen? You're telling me that a, a random stranger that you've never met, never seen, doesn't know you, you have no contact with, you never... Exactly! And why did that happen? 
Who knows? But what does that change? What are what the answers to those questions? Change? Does it change anything? Does it change anything in my reality right now? Nothing. Here's what it doesn't change. It doesn't change God's love for me. It doesn't change my understanding of His character and His nature. It doesn't change anything about me and God and our relationship and the way we interact. And if anything, it causes me to press in because I have to trust Him in the midst of unknown things. But we lie. We lie. I don't deserve it. It's not for me. It's for someone else. And we just stay beaten down and defeated. And and here's what we do. We get comfortable there. And so resonate with it. If the shoe fits, put it on. And then it just becomes an excuse for being spiritually lazy. Oh, see... I've done all this and all this and all this and it's made this. And so there's no point. And so you're just lethargic. You don't grow. You don't seek after God. You don't, and it's all because of the lies you tell yourself. It has nothing to do with God. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice. Now, now let's think about this for a second. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Come on, we're going to bring it home, and then you're going to go home. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Does that sound bizarre to you? Do you have trouble... Fitting that passage into your theology? Do you, do, do you struggle to understand this facet of God's character and nature? Now here's the, the kicker in all this. How can God say this? Now, come on, you got to think about it. How can God say that? Because, let's face it. Do any of us in here, do do we feel entitled to that? Do we feel worthy of that do we feel no we don't because we're not but here's the thing we're not yet God says it we're not yet it is so how can those two things reconcile because someone's someone's living in denial Is God the the doting parent that only sees the good in his spoiled, rotten, wicked little demon child? Huh? I mean, is God the, the parent 
of the humiliating children on American Idol because their parents told them all their life they could sing. But no one in their life has the courage to say, bro, you got no talent, you shouldn't do that, especially on TV. Is that what we have here? Because no, I really want you to wrestle with it. Here's what God says. You know who you are. Now, how does this, how does this reconcile? And I know what you're thinking, but you're wrong. That's not, that's not the answer. It's more than that. God can only say this because of one reason. And one reason only. And it's... it's, it's it's something that we miss all the time. It's because when Jesus hung on the cross, he wasn't thinking of us. Now see, some of you, just that statement kind of radically shocked you, which I'm very sorry. Stop listening to Caleb. You've been deceived. Singing it doesn't make it true. Newsflash. I was a young Christian when uh, the big song in Christian music was uh, Lenny LeBlanc sung that song, uh, He Thought of Me Above All. The most heretical song ever sung in the history of the world. It's total heresy. Total heresy. You, if you think God was thinking of you on the cross. Now you know how you got so twisted up. Because that will lead you to destruction right there. But first of all, let's verify that we're on the right track and that Tony hasn't lost his mind. Ephesians 5.2, there's a million examples. But here's one. Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Huh. Was he thinking about us? No. As a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We were the offering. We were the sacrifice. You know who he was thinking of? The one he gave the offering to. That's who he was thinking of. You see that? That's super important. John chapter 6, Jesus said, For I have come down to, oh, gaze and think of, you know, think of all the ways that I'm going to save these people. No, he came from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So, why? Why would God? Now think about this. It's going to get deep and then we're going to be done. Okay? Why would God? God determines that he wants to save sinners. He can do this any way he wants to. He's God. But he chose to do it this way. Why did God... Make sure, not only that he accomplished salvation in the way he did, but that we would know that he did it in the way he did. 
Why did God go out of his way to make sure that we would know that he wasn't thinking of us on the cross? Well, just think for a second about what would be, what would happen if that were true. I mean, think of the gazillions of people that are in gazillions of churches just like this that are so deceived where people mishandle the Word of God and teach them that Jesus hung on the cross thinking of them. Why is that a catastrophic theological disaster? Well, what happens then? If we're the object of all of this, you see... There's no grudge held by God in salvation because Jesus did what he did to please his Father. Now, now just stay with me now for a second. If Jesus hung on the cross and was thinking of Tony on the cross, he's hanging on the cross and he's thinking, man, I'm doing this for Tony. I love Tony. I'm doing this for Tony then what does that mean? He dies for the salvation of Tony. Then he watches Tony's life unfold. And he's like, bro, I died for that? Huh? Come on. So if he's thinking of you, how does he feel right now? Were you worthy of his death? Huh? Have you lived up to that? You, you're doing, you're killing it. God's like, oh, you, yeah, there's five or six of y'all in here. Totally worth dying for. Who are you? In other words, the whole cross is diminished. If Jesus is thinking of us as he dies. Because then salvation, the worthiness of salvation, the, what did he accomplish on the cross? Well, I don't know. That depends on what we do. Think about this. See, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He for the joy set before him endured the cross, knowing full well that we were going to come from that. Are you okay with that? In other words, you, do you go to sleep at night and go, I was so worth the blood of Christ? Yeah. Like the perfect son of God shed his blood for me. Like that was, I mean, I, I deserve that. I was worthy of that. I mean, I'm, I should. Listen. It would allow God to be, the the way God did it is the only way he could do it. it's It's the most brilliant thing in the world. It allows God to be grieved by our sin and rebellion because he did it for the Father. Think about this. Without feeling regret or remorse for our salvation. Regardless of how we live. Regardless of what the outcome of our life is. You see, the victory of the cross is in no way connected to the behavior of the saints. You see, 
If, if you as a saved individual stink at Christianity, I ain't calling no names, but uh, if you hadn't sanctified, you hadn't been sanctified worth a flip, does that make the cross less of a victory? Is the reason the cross of victory is because of the Billy Grahams of the world? You see how that connected to our performance? No, 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 ma'am, no, sir. I don't care what you were taught growing up. That is wrong. That is heresy. And that will get you living the wrong direction and believing wrong things. Listen, if it were true that Jesus thought of us on the cross, then salvation would have come in phases. The cross would have only been a phase in the process of salvation. In other words, here's how it would have worked. Uh, send Jesus to live the perfect life. Phase one. Have Jesus die on the cross to save sinners. Phase two. Send the Holy Spirit to help saved people accomplish the work that remains. Phase three. If saved people accomplish the work... The plan is a success. Complete lie. Instead, Jesus, it's not phases of salvation. What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. Victory. Success. Doesn't matter what me and you do. What me and you do in no way represents the success of what happened on Calvary. Listen, in John chapter 17, it's amazing. Uh, here's what Jesus says. He says, I pray for them. He's talking about us. I do not pray for the world, but those whom you've given me. He's talking to his Father, and we, we're listening in Jesus talking to his Father. I don't pray for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they're yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine. And then here's the kicker. The last thing of John 17, 10, he says, and I am. Now, 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 earlier he said, I don't just pray for them, but all of them who will follow me. Right? So he's talking about me and you. John 17. He's talking about me and you. And at the end of verse 10, he says, all are mine, mine are yours. Jesus says, I am glorified in them. We ain't even done nothing. We ain't even been born. We've yet to start our, our illustrious string of failures. And he says, I am glorified in them. It's a done deal. You know why? Because he's not glorified in us based on our performance. He's glorified in us based on his accomplishment of the Father's will. But if you think he was thinking about you, then you're never going to delight. And what he really thinks about you, because you'll never be able to cross that bridge. That's, that's how so many people are deceived right there. 
If I think Jesus was thinking about me on the cross, it's not that great. Because I'm not that great. And neither are you. We're not what made the cross great. We just received something great from the cross. You see, we're the recipients of the greatness that the cross represents. The cross is not epitomized by us. Thank God for that. Don't you see the wisdom of God? So here's what I want you to understand. All of this is to say, the God who could have done anything any way he wanted to, he painstakingly made every detail of the gospel such that it would, it, it would fling the door open to his heart and for us to be able to know him for who he is. But when we resist the gospel, we resist the word of God, we resist, we don't, listen, some of you, the reason you don't know what I'm teaching tonight is because you, you don't want to know. Because you've been deceived into believing that it's not true for you. And your failure, your lack of faithfulness, your whatever it is, whatever standard you haven't lived up to, whatever mark you haven't met, whatever thing. has. This is why people who get down so oftentimes stay down. I don't understand that. I do not understand that. I understand getting down. But in Christ, I do not understand staying down. I cannot wrap my head around that. But it happens every day. You know, you don't want to know something great if it's just for other people. But I'm just telling you that God has done this in such a miraculous way. That, that if I want you to realize that the worst news in the world would be that God hung on the cross thinking of me and you. And the greatest news ever is that he was thinking about his father and that his father orchestrated this plan so that we would be able to have full access to God's love without, without feeling distant, without our behavior, our performance, making space between us without, without so, that, so that we could come to the place in our life where we wouldn't know or memorize, but we would literally, in the depths of our heart, we believe God when he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none. Not in the future, now. There is therefore now, tonight, right now, God set some people free. 
He intentionally orchestrated every detail of salvation so that nothing would depend on our performance. It almost sounds crazy to some of you I know. So that he could delight in our presence. Does that bother you? Does that sound wrong to you? Like, because it, it should. Because it's like, wait a minute. Why would God delight in my presence? Exactly. That's the point. Like, go home tonight and go, God delights in me. How in the world is that possible? Now, you have the gospel. 